Well, it has been a long week for me. If you were here last week, you know why. Uh, my family and I, four out of the five actually of us in the Wellens clan, have been battling the stomach flu this week. All joy, total joy, and hope and peace. <laughs> we, uh, I decided to tack on uh, the pink eye and uh, a massive sinus infection to my stomach flu, so it's been... A really long week for me. My kids have had some fun at my expense. You know, you get to know each other pretty intimately when you have the stomach flu. And um, so apparently we all make different sounds in the bathroom. And uh, my, my wife and kids told me yesterday that I have since, because of my loudness, because of the violence with which I attend the bathroom during the stomach flu, I have been since named the Silverback Gorilla. That's... <laughs> That's my new nickname. Twice yesterday, Hillary walked by me and she just went, oh, <laughs> walked on by. My, my family is so kind and tender <laughs> to me. It has been a long week, but I, I will say this for me, you know, it's the mixed bag of emotions when you're, when you're sick, it's kind of all over the map. But I, I did find myself grateful for a couple of things this week. One is, is for the team that we have here at Fellowship. You know, I, I did, he read the text. I texted Lloyd last Saturday morning at six or seven in the morning. Lloyd had been up uh, late last, the night before on Friday night teaching at a student ministry camp. Was up that morning uh, preparing for a funeral that was all afternoon that afternoon. And then he came in here and taught uh, at five o'clock and he did an incredible job summarizing chapter one. Just a remarkable job. So grateful to be part of a team like that with him and Michael. Michael was in Asheville teaching at a conference in, in Asheville. It really is a privilege to join with those men and teach. And I'm grateful for you. Uh, so many of you, I don't know who you are, but so many of you stopped Hillary this week in, at the store and at the school and wherever else and asked about our family and told her that you were praying for our family. So I really do appreciate that community and care. And, and I'm grateful to be back on my feet. I am. I really am I'm grateful to be back on my feet and opening God's word together with you this morning. And so let's do that. I want you to take out your Bible and, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're in Ephesians chapter 2 today, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. But before we go there, I want you to look back at chapter 1. We, we need to do a little bit of review so that we can feel the full weight of the shift that Paul makes as he begins chapter 2. And, and let me just say this right off the top here. What, what Paul is going to say to you and me today is, is not good news. It's really not. It's heavy it's hard, it's disturbing. It's not something that we like to think very deeply about. It's not something that we often think very deeply about. It's not something that's talked about often in the church today. Uh, many pastors I know that won't touch it, at least not in the way that, that Paul talks about it here. It, it's also not anything new. You know, what Paul says here is foundational to the gospel message. What he says here is the basis for all that Jesus Christ did on our behalf. But that doesn't make it easy to digest. And it's harder still to embrace as true. These are hard words from Paul. You've probably heard Lloyd and I talk about falling in love with reality. Well, this is a reality that is very difficult to fall in love with. So here's my word of warning for you today. I don't think you're going to walk out of here this morning all fired up about what it means to be a Christian. I know, not, not today, not for where we are. 
I think you might walk out of here this morning a bit sober, maybe even a little bit helpless, and certainly wrestling with what to believe about yourself. For sure, we're going to walk out of here this morning without any resolution to the problem that Paul addresses. It's not found in our text for today. And so we won't solve it either. So now that you are just dying to hear this message, (laughs) let me set the context from Ephesians chapter 1, okay? Ephesians chapter 1, you see in the first verse, Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He writes to the saints. We mentioned this last week. The saints are those who believe in Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's writing to you and me. He's writing to the saints. And and you remember this, this long sentence that begins in in verse 3. He tells us that that we bless God for all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, that are ours for those who are in Christ, those who are saints. And he goes through all those blessings. You were chosen from beginning of the, from before the foundation of the world. You were adopted as his own son and daughter. You were redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You have inherit, you have an inheritance. Your eternity is secure. It's sealed by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's incredible what we have in Christ. And then Paul prays that that begins in verse 15 and he prays that, that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see all that we have in Christ, to see all those spiritual blessings, all the riches of his grace that are available to us in Christ, that we would intimately, that we would personally know the hope of our calling, intimately and personally know the riches of his inheritance, intimately and personally know the surpassing greatness of his power. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul shifts gears, and it gets really heavy really quickly. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What? I'm sorry, Paul. Could you repeat that? I thought we were talking about all, all the good stuff here. No, no, you church, you saints, you men and women in this room, you were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Yikes. Three weeks ago, I was in Hawaii. I know it's tough being in the ministry. It's very difficult. Uh, it's unbelievable that I got to go. Generosity of a, of a couple in this body, Hillary and I got to go. And if you've ever been to Hawaii, um, it just it's it's paradise. You ever seen pictures? Whatever you know, it's par- it's perfect. Weather is perfect all the time. Sunsets are magnificent. The watercolor, the sand, the beaches—it's it, it, just incredible. Am I making you jealous yet? 
because I can go on if you want me to. Like the golf was incredible, the whales jumped. It was unbelievable, okay? We, we took off from Hawaii to come back from the big island, Kona. We, we flew out on a red eye to, to Phoenix. Now, m- most of the time when we think about Phoenix, especially th- this time of year, we think, well, Phoenix is a beautiful place too. Well, not at the airport. It's not. No, you land in the desert. Nothing growing around the airport at Phoenix. It's brown everywhere you look. It's, it's dead everywhere you look. Okay, track with me here. Ephesians chapter one, Paul takes off from Hawaii, circles the islands a little bit. Ephesians chapter two, Paul lands in the desert. And Paul has something for us in the desert. He wants us to understand something about the desert. Something that the church at Ephesus didn't get. Something that fellowship doesn't fully understand. Something that is true about us that we tend to gloss over or miss altogether. And that is that you were dead. Deader than the desert, dead. Lifeless, motionless, breathless, dead in your sin. Here's what we're going to do. I, I'm going to take us through the text just briefly. I'm going to phrase by phrase, just briefly through the text. And in the text, Paul will explain what it means to be dead, what it means to be spiritually dead, even while we are still living. Okay. What does it mean to be dead? And, and then we're going to pull back from that. And we're going to look at the three verses in its broader context we look at these three verses in the broader context and we're asked the question, why does Paul right here spend three verses on death for those who aren't dead anymore? See, this is written to the saints, right? Those who are alive in Christ, those who have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Why, why does Paul stop and go back to who we were before Christ? And we'll spend some time in that question. But let's look at the text first, okay? Let's look at the text. And let's start with sin. It says here that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Two two Greek words, they're different Greek words. They refer to essentially the same thing. And and we talked about this three weeks ago. We just said it this way, "You, you and I are sinners. Like all who have gone before us, we make willful, selfish choices that act against the righteousness of God. Choices to undermine his authority in our lives. Choices that do not align with his character. And Paul says here that those willful, deliberate choices, they result in absolute spiritual death. Well, what is spiritual death? Spiritual death is simply separation from God. It's broken relationship with God. Think about Adam and Eve here. When they sinned, when they disobeyed God, when they ate from the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, when they ate from that tree, they didn't physically die. Their perfect fellowship, their perfect relationship with God in the garden, that was what was broken. They were separated from God, literally transported out of the garden. Spiritual death is total and complete separation from relationship with God, even while, in this case, even while you're still living. And John Stott says this, life apart from God 
is a living death. Life apart from God is a living death. And then Paul does something here. He, he, he takes these next two verses and he shares three things about what it's like to be dead. He just describes it for us so that we would understand it. He says that, that those who are spiritually dead, here's what he's going to do. He's going to say those who are spiritually dead are controlled by three things. Kent Hughes says they were under the sway of three things, the world, the devil, and our own flesh. We are controlled by the values of the world. We are under the authority of the enemy of God, under the authority of Satan, and we are controlled by the desires of our own flesh. Look at verse two. You're dead in your sins, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And that is the spiritual darkness that we see all around us today. That word for world is the word cosmos. It's used 186 times in the New Testament. Almost every single instance, its connotation is with evil. Take the word course, it also means age. It means this present evil age, the spiritual darkness that we see all around us where, where image and selfishness and sexuality and immorality and idolatry and unaccountable independence have, have become the the social and the cultural norm. They've become the value system that stands contrary or hostile to God. That was true in Ephesus. Ephesus was a large marketplace. It was a trade city. Many, many foreign gods, many idols, much affluence in Ephesus. And it's certainly true in our nation today. So Paul simply suggesting that that's how dead people live under the influence of the world. And when you were dead, you lived that way too. Okay, that's the first part. The second part is found in the second part of verse two, which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, this is a clear reference to Satan. To the enemy of God, that word, prince of the power of the air, that phrase, it's, it's used often in the New Testament to refer uh, to Satan. We have a very real enemy. Satan is a very real person. Now, Satan does not maintain a material existence. The reference to spirit, reference to the air, Satan's existence is as a spiritual being. He operates in a spiritual realm but he has pervasive influence over this world from a spiritual realm through those who are just like you were, those who are spiritually dead. Paul calls them the sons of disobedience here. And Paul reminds us that when we were dead, we too lived subject to that authority. Whether you knew it or not, you lived under the authority of the enemy and contrary to the will of God. Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of darkness. It's against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the spiritual realm. See that? We have a very real enemy that influences us when we are spiritually dead. Now, look at the third part. Notice in verse 3, 
that Paul broadens the scope a bit here. Paul is writing to Gentiles in Ephesus. And in this case, he includes the Jews. He includes himself. Look at the first phrase. Among them, we too all. Just stop there for a moment and don't miss this. Spiritual death is universal. There's no one who's exempt. No one who gets a pass. Romans chapter 3 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. None that does good. None that pleases God spiritually speaking. Spiritual death is universal. Among them too, we all formally lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Paul's simply saying here that when you were dead, you were slave to something inside of you as well. You were enslaved to your sin nature. Paul calls it flesh here. You were controlled by, you were corrupted by the desires of your flesh. I like the way Stephen Fowle describes the flesh. flesh. Here's what he says. I think this is so helpful. He says, the flesh is a term equivalent to total selfishness. Okay, Total selfishness. Self-interest, self-promotion, self-gratification. It's a life subject to the desires of the body and the mind, passionately interested only in what will promote our own good and unable to do other than sin. It's what it's like to live controlled by the flesh. So, so what does it mean to be spiritually dead? What does it mean to be dead in our sin? Well, it means that we're subject to some external influences, the world, the values of the world, and Satan. And it means that we are subject to an internal influence, a sin nature that corrupts us from the inside out. It means that we are slave to our own flesh. So we sin from without and we sin from within. And as a result, we are all, Paul says, Children of wrath. We're subject to the wrath of a perfectly righteous God. John 3, whoever rejects God is dead and God's wrath remains on him. These are hard, hard words, aren't they? And why does Paul write them? Well, why does Paul spend three verses here on death for those of us who aren't dead anymore? Well, we hinted at it along the way. It's because Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he knows that the saints, he knows that you and I, we don't understand just how bad off we were. That's why he says it. We don't get fully, we don't fully get that we were really dead. And truly understanding how bad off we were is foundational. It's essential to right relationship with God. It's essential for everything that Paul has to say to us about the Christian life. In other words, connecting it back to chapter one, 
until you and I understand how bad off we were, we cannot fully understand the incredible blessings that we have right now. You can't get all that until you understand this. So stop, hold on, slow down, go back. I'm going to spend three verses here. And I'm going to spend three chapters in the book of Romans to make sure that you understand just how bad off you were. You see, for all of human history, there have been three basic views on human nature. Lots of little nuances, guys that try to combine two of the three. But for all of human history, including today, there have been three basic views on human nature. Here they are. The first is, man is well. Okay, that's the first, man is well. Second is, man is sick. And the third is, man is dead. Man is well, man is sick, man is dead. Proponents of the first few say this, man is well. So if man is well, all, all we really need to care about is uh, some level of rest, some good diet, and, and some exercise. Man, they're just going to keep well what is already well. That, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to keep that well. The, the motto of, of this first group would be something like, man, I, I'm good, you're good, it's all good. Okay, man, man is well. So second group, proponents of this group would, would say that man is sick, maybe even mortally ill, but man is not helpless. The the situation is grave. The situation is not good, but it's not irreparable. Okay. Man is sick. Then the third group would say man is not well, man is not sick, but man is actually dead. And it's impossible for man to do anything about it. Here's a question that just bubbles up right, right out of the text. What do you believe about human nature? What do you believe about yourself? Do you believe that you are well? Do you believe that you are sick or do you believe that you are dead? Do you believe that that you're fine, that that you can find your way? If there is a God that you'll you'll find your way to him and and everything will work out just fine. Do you believe that you're sick? Are you like the person that that fell off the boat and and you're treading water at sea? You're in danger. You, You need help and and you're waiting for God to throw a life preserver off the boat that lands near you just so you can muster up just enough energy to to reach up and and grab it. Like like God comes 98% of the way, but I I come 2%. I I grab on to that life preserver. Are you sick? Or, Or are you face down flat, dead on the bottom of the ocean floor? Like if there's a life preserver up there, you wouldn't know it. It's 200 feet above you in the water. There's nothing you can do. You couldn't even turn to look at it. Are you lifeless, breathless, dead in your sin on the ocean floor? Which is it for you? I was at dinner with some friends the other night, kind of a group of mutual friends, some from out of town, and and, uh, and this, this conversation came up. We started talking about human nature. We talked about everybody from Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler and everything in between. 
You talk about his man well, his man sick, his man dead. We, we talked about it. And our group, most actually, I think our whole group was was over here, somewhere between sick and dead. We we had a great conversation about whether we were sick or whether we were dead. And and at the end of the conversation, was we started talking more about spiritual death, a friend of mine asked a question, and it just kind of landed on the table with a thud. It, it did. He he said, "Well, if you're dead." What are you going to do about it? See, that's a major problem, isn't it? A dead man can't do anything about it. A dead man can't do anything at all. And the Bible teaches that every single one of us is born into sin. That one of the consequences of Adam's sin in, in Genesis chapter 3 is that all of us have inherited a sin nature. It's, it's what Paul calls the flesh here. And David talks about it as well. David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, brought forth in sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. The Bible says that we are not well. The Bible says that at least we're sick. The Bible says that because of our sin as sinners, we actually have no capacity. We're totally unable to reconcile ourselves with God. We're sinful. We're depraved. We're born into the world spiritually bankrupt, enslaved to sin, and unable to turn to God for salvation from it. And our depravity affects every part of us. It affects our, our minds, our hearts, our will, our emotions, even our bodies. And we're depraved in the sense, in fact, because we are depraved, we aren't able to do anything that pleases God. Now, let me be clear here. The Bible does not teach that human beings are all as bad as they possibly could be. Most of us don't go to the depths that we could go in our sin. And the Bible doesn't teach that, that human beings aren't capable of any good. Human beings are capable of great good. We see it in our, in our world today in, in art, in music, in medicine, in education, in civilization, in marketplace. Human beings are capable of great good. But what Paul does say here, is that when it comes to spiritual good, when it comes to right standing before God, listen, when it comes to pleasing God on account of our own righteousness, we are utterly lost. There is no spiritual good in us. Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot Please, God, the Bible says that we are not sick either. Which only leaves one, doesn't it? I remember the first time that I, I heard this truth taught. I was in my, my mid-20s. And uh, I remember the, the turmoil that I felt in my chest. This like deep-seated resistance to that. I didn't, I didn't like that idea. Didn't like the idea of being face down dead on, on the bottom of the ocean floor. I, I knew I wasn't well. I wanted to be sick, right? I wanted to be sick. 
That's what I wanted. Even if I was so sick that I was out there treading water and God had to throw a life preserver and it landed perfectly around my head. And I just stuck my little finger up through it. That, that's what I wanted. I, I still feel some of that tension today. So some of it's what I grew up learning. Some of it's what I, I chose to believe and, and wrestled with as I, as I was growing up. A, a lot of it, and I remember this moment vividly, a lot of it in my own chest, though, was deeper than that. You get below the surface a little bit to, to, to a deeper level in, in my own heart. And, and for me, it, it was a whole lot more self-dependence, a whole lot more self-reliance. Like it was pride in me that, that didn't want to embrace that as true. I didn't want to be that needy, frankly. That was it for me. I saw myself as higher than that, better than that. I still wrestle with that. I didn't want to fall in love with this reality. You know, so much of it for me, and this is, this is my flesh. Here it is coming out. Your flesh may be different. It's totally normal. My flesh coming out, so much of it tied for me to performing for my worth. How's that connected? Well, here's how it's connected. See, if, if I can't earn it, if I can't achieve it, if I can't merit it, if I can't gain it, then where does my worth come from? Where does my value come from? Where, where's my identity then? And when I wrestled with this truth, when I wrestled with it and began to embrace it as true, I'll, I'll just say this for me, the Spirit of God really changed me, changed my view of me, changed my view of Him. I thought this would feel restrictive. This actually feels like freedom. Great freedom. You see, what you believe about this, it changes everything. It's either you're going to believe that you're, that you're capable, in, even in some small way, maybe you're sick, you're, you're going to, you believe that you're capable and you'll spend the rest of your life trying to prove your capability to God. Paul says it won't be enough. Or you'll choose to believe that you're totally unable, and if you do, then you will spend the rest of your life focused on and devoted to the one who is able and he is way, way more than enough. See, there is a connection here between Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 1. There, there is a connection between dead in your sin and the surpassing greatness of the power of God and all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. There, there is a connection there, Paul. Paul doesn't get these words out of order, no. The connection represents a total paradigm shift. There is something about death that demonstrates the glory of God like nothing else. But I'm not going to make that connection today. That connection is going to have to come on another time. I'm just going to say this for today. The only way to make that connection starts right here. It begins with what you believe about your sin. Are you well? Are you sick? Or are you dead? And I'm going to invite us this week, because of where we are in the text, just to sit in the heaviness of that. Just to sit with it. Wrestle with it. To consider what Paul has to say. And decide what we believe about ourselves. 
I think that if you will sit with it, it will prove valuable to you. I think you'll be glad you did it. And I think you'll come back next week ready to worship. I do. Would you join me as I pray for us this week? God, we readily admit that these are hard words. Very difficult place for us to go, a place that is difficult for us to fully understand, to wrestle with why this would be so important. You know, you chose it necessary, fruitful, productive to include it in your word for us. So I pray that as a people, we would wrestle with it well. In places where we feel resistance to it, as I did. Places where we embrace it fully. Places where we don't entirely understand. We ask your spirit to show us. We ask your spirit to make it clear to us. And we pray that we would embrace all that we were before you. And that as we embrace that at the very core of our being, we would have eyes to see your power. Eyes to see your grace differently. Eyes to see the beauty of the riches of the spiritual blessings that are ours now and for eternity to come. I'm mindful of the people in this room this morning that don't know Christ. I can't imagine what it feels like to be told that you're dead. And so I pray that you would, in fact, make clear who you are to each of them. I pray that they might study, they might ask questions, they might learn, and they might understand what it is to find life in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand with me? I want to send us out with some words from King David from Psalm 51. I mentioned it earlier. Read a couple of verses here. King David sure seemed to understand his own sin. He got this wrestle and he got it deeply in his own heart. Hear his words. He says this, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only God, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part of me, you will make me know wisdom. Wisdom is found in understanding the core of who we are and in an understanding the core of who he is. May we find wisdom as we wrestle well with this truth this week. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.